You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In this episode of Take Is Directed, I sit down with David Gressley, the UN Emergency Ebola Response Coordinator in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. He was appointed in May by the UN Secretary General to lead a more strategic, coordinated, and better funded effort to arrest the dangerously escalating Ebola outbreak. Today's podcast is the first of a pair of episodes that examines the root causes of targeted violence against health providers and active community resistance in Eastern Congo, and what steps are now essential to end violence and win community trust and confidence. Welcome, David, and thank you so much for being with us today. You have a remarkable personal professional history in the UN, predominantly in the UN, over several decades, working in a number of complicated, in senior positions, in a number of complicated places, mostly grounded in Africa, Sahel, including Mali, South Sudan, DRC since 2015, I believe. That's correct. When you first came in as a deputy special representative for the UN peacekeeping operation, MONUSCO. Tell us a bit about your own personal, professional development, the arc, the, the steps that brought you to where you are today, where you've been now asked to take on these new duties in a very difficult and complicated situation. Well, it's been a very interesting trajectory, I guess. As you said, I've been working primarily in Africa basically since 1978, so basically 40 years now, in a variety of ways. I'm, I'm very much a field person. Uh, I, I think that's the best way to describe what I, what I do, and I really enjoy working with communities, with local leaders, and worked, whether it's in the development area, which is where I worked initially. I worked with UNICEF for many years in places like Nigeria and Guinea and working on, on both humanitarian development issues. But where I think really this, this took off was in South Sudan, where I was initially the last Operation Lifeline Sudan mm-hmm. uh, coordinator, in fact, yeah. in the transition to the post-peace agreement phase starting in 2005. Brought me into uh, really interesting work, both on the humanitarian side as well as on a mediation side. I worked extensively in establishing contacts with Joseph Kony in terms mm-hmm. of the LRA, LRA peace talks yeah. and even set up a camp uh, on the border next to his base so that we could facilitate those talks. So there's always been a transition between humanitarian and political. Humanitarian is always very challenging and interesting because it's 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 dynamic and you can actually uh, help people immediately, but it's also not fully satisfying because it doesn't actually solve the problem. And that's my interest in getting on the political side is that there you can start to address the more fundamental reasons why there's conflict and a need for humanitarian assistance. So uh, that's what I worked with uh, quite a bit also in South Sudan in my second role there and then in Mali. Likewise, mediation with armed groups in the north, uh, particularly the Tuareg uh, groups, supporting those negotiations, looking for, for solutions. And so 
I just see the whole thing as a continuum. I enjoy working in each of those pieces, and I'm looking forward to, to applying those skills in, in my new role. Thank you. So what I take away is that you're a person who brings this very unusual mix of senior-level experience in four or five geopolitical crisis zones, which have required expertise in humanitarian emergency response and development in terms of complicated political transitions like we saw with South Sudan, in terms of political, active political mediation with irregular armed entities that have been around for a while and are, and are oftentimes fragmented and difficult to deal with, and coordination and oversight of a far-flung assembly of UN organizations, NGOs, partner governments, donor governments, right? That sort of maze of actors that enter this where the UN plays such a vitally important central pivot role of trying to knit the pieces together. So when your appointment was made by the Secretary General Guterres, it was the third week of May, as I recall. That's correct. Third week of May to take on this role in eastern Congo and beyond. It was met with a certain amount of relief and praise that the Secretary General had taken this step. We're now at a mark where we're you could argue this outbreak's been going on for a year. Most people believe it started in April of 18 and was not officially declared until August 1st. There's been a lot achieved in terms of the deployment of 700 international health providers, 400 Congolese, 135,000 vaccines introduced, uh, nine visits by the Secretary, the Director General of WHO, Lots of visits by recently by Mark Green, the administrator, USAID, Tim, Tim Zemer from USAID, Robert Redfield from CDC. We're seeing the attention levels. I think people understand the gravity of the situation, that we're not out of the woods by any means. Since March, we've seen a nonlinear increase in the outbreaks. So we're at that one-year mark, beyond that one-year mark, and this is still a very dangerous outbreak. 1,510 dead as of yesterday, 2,247 cases that we know of. That may, be, that may be half of what is really known. We don't know. It's hard to say. So how do you see, let's, before we talked about your role and how you're going to move ahead, how do you see the current situation? What do, when you look at it, we, there's certain things we did not see very clearly. The politics involved, the impact of the elections the subterranean economic forces that are going on in terms of illicit high-value gold, rare earth minerals and the like, and the historical legacy of this region that was just simply overrun after the Rwanda genocide. 1.5 million people came in. The genocide continued inside eastern Congo. How do you see the situation? How are you looking at it? Well, I, I think you've described it very well, the complexity it's unlike any other epidemic of Ebola in the DRC or, or any other epidemic, quite frankly, in that it's taking place in a, in a very complex environment. And it's difficult for public health responders to, to know how to deal with all of those issues, and it's unfair to expect them to. In, in the past, uh, the epidemics in, in the DRC took place generally in remote areas where a quick surge in 
finish the problem in, in, in a short amount of time. The one most recently in Equateur was a little bit more difficult because it was adjacent to a populated area, but not the same complexities that we've just seen here. Took a little bit more work. What happened here, I think, is that the initial surge was not enough because of the complexities. It was not enough because that response was interrupted multiple times by attacks, by strikes, by political protests, etc., which created opportunities for that virus to continue to propagate and grow exponentially, as, you, as you've described. And then secondly, full surveillance in that area is very difficult be, for the same security reasons. So it's quite easy to be surprised by something that's been circulating and then explodes because it was not seen. So it's important that public health response be given a, a correct environment in which to work so that they can actually finish the job in a way that they've not. And this is, I think, what the Secretary General's intent is to mobilize a whole of UN approach uh, together with partners to, to deal with the obstacles to the response that go beyond public health. And that's what I'm, I'm focusing on at this time. Thank you. So let's talk about the role that you're going to play. This has been the response over the last year. It's been valiant. It's contained the outbreak. If we hadn't had this sort of in, uh, in engagement and investment by these 1,100 workers, the support of many donors, the role of the vaccine, this would have been a full runaway epidemic and a complete catastrophe. So we need to acknowledge all of those gains and that foundational support, but we're still facing considerable danger, and we have, many have said this has still been a very fragmented approach, that you have WHO, you have, you have the government, you have UNICEF off on the margins, um, you have MSF getting, having, taking its own perspective and retreating into a different role. It's been difficult to get CDC and AID seasoned senior people into the hot zone, there's been efforts to try and get the U.S. role expanded and, and, and lashed up. There is, has not been a strategic costed plan. It's been more in the next 90 days we'll try to arrest this. And people have continued to say, well, there's, we need answers. We need, a, we need to understand how do we not worsen but alleviate the security threats? How do we bring new money in from donors because there's a dire financial crisis at the moment for the current plan? And how do we truly win back the trust and confidence of communities in this period? Just tell us a bit. Those are the big problem sets that are on your desk now. And tell us a bit about your strategy for trying. You're not doing this alone. You're the guy that's supposed to be there helping command a concerted approach. You're not the operator, but the guy that is now charged with rethinking, resetting, and moving things forward. Tell us a little bit at this early point how you're proceeding. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that surge approach was not sufficient in this case. Yeah. And, and that implies a much more systematic approach being required. And I think that's, that's, that's the core of what we need to put in place here. So much tighter um, uh, coordination, much tighter discipline among those who are working together. I think there's a commitment for that. And, and I hope I can, I can provide the kind of leadership that encourages that. It's also a question of correct use of resources and the timely use of resources. The other thing that's important to note is that we are tend, to, because of the surge approach, we tend to chase the virus 
moving resources where there's a hot spot, which is fine in itself, but sometimes leaving empty space behind. So we need to work more to anticipate where the virus could be uh, circulating, anticipate where uh, we need to improve, whether it's in community engagement, surveillance, or whatever, so we detect it quicker, and stop chasing this thing and get ahead of it. That's the core, I think, of what we need to do. But to do that, we have to be very systematic and linking all the pieces that you've described, whether it's the security piece, we're not able to go to a certain place for surveillance, we need to overcome that. I can describe in more detail how that can happen. But more equally, we need to make sure that we have a good presence of responders everywhere in the active areas and not overinvest in one area and leaving others behind. We need more targeted funding coming in that's very precise so that we maximize the use of scarce resources. Likewise, even with the vaccine, which we're coming into uh, a period where production or the lack of that is becoming a constraint on how that can be utilized. So we need to treat resources as a very precious thing. And I'm very happy with the World Bank that they're going to help provide tools that will allow us to do that. So we'll work to build a team of international assistance that links, whether it's the security, the community engagement, building the trust with the communities, financial management, preparedness, all in one large effort to to move forward. I've been on the ground. I haven't seen anything on the ground that I see insurmountable in any of those areas. It's a question of harnessing all of the Mm -hmm. capabilities and moving in in a coherent way. That's essentially what I'm trying to, to work to build with good cooperation, I have to say, by everybody on the ground. There have been criticisms, but I I think we've talked through a lot of that. And I'm pretty confident that we will have teams working together, not only at the senior leadership level, but at multiple levels and in locations like Butembo, which has been Mm -hmm. problematic, Mm -hmm. but also Beni, where we're seeing an uptick again Mm -hmm. in in virus circulation. And then also in in, in a place like Bunya, which Mm -hmm. is on the outside Mm -hmm. edges, but has been infected uh, multiple times. And it's a zone that's increasingly facing conflict, which could make that a complicated zone as well. So we need to have that whole platform fully functional. Bunia is where we had the recent upsurge of inter-ethnic violence that displaced another 300,000 That's last week, in the last two weeks. Yeah. Right. Just for our listeners, on the public health indicators of whether the outbreak is being arrested, we have 22 health zones that are covered, that are affected by this. It's a densely populated region, 8.5 million people between Aturi and North Kivu. Most of the infection is in North Kivu, right, 10% in Aturi. There's still very, very disturbing indicators in sense of 50% of the fatalities are happening outside of health facilities. Six to seven days duration between being diagnosed and being isolated and put into treatment. It has to be much, much shorter period of time. And over 50% of the cases that do present, we don't know where they came from. We don't have any, any way of tracking back to this origin, which is a very dangerous. So we're in the dark on a number of things, and those have to be fixed along with safe burials, infection control in the health centers and the like. Very high proportion of children getting infected. Uh, tragically, I think a third of the fatalities. And very fairly high numbers. 10% of these numbers are health providers that have died. At the core of the response is getting those health and public health interventions right in order to change those indicators. Now, On the security strategy, you hear very contradictory sort of things. People saying the response has been overly militarized. It cannot be militarized anymore. That is partly what's triggering a violent reaction. 
But then you have the reality of you need to, we need to be, have some measure of protection in a dangerous situation. And then we have the allegation, well, the communities are not being engaged, but their own political leadership may not be pretty much at the table either. In other words, this is a region that sided in the electoral competition for presidential with Martin Fayolu and Mabuza, and they were denied the opportunity to vote. They feel the elections were stolen. They're alienated. How do you bring in, how do you use your good offices and, and background to change the equation around the security and the political engagement by the leadership at the local level but also within this regional? How do you get the Martin Fayulus and Mbuzas and others in, deeply engaged in motivating folks to take another look? And how do you begin to bring to the communities things that people will trust and honor? Well, what you've said is is very true. All these elements are intermeshed. They also can be quite local. Yes. What works in one locality may not be the approach that works in another one. So you need to be very specific in, in how you deal with each, uh, each locality. Just to maybe take two or three pieces of what you've described. On the security side, the allegations you described it is much more towards the use of armed escorts by national forces, security forces, military or police, or point security at given centers. That's where the concern comes. This is like far DC forces. This is National Army, yeah. Congolese yep. Army, or National Police, because it has been an area long in opposition to the government in, in Kinshasa. These forces are not always seen in yeah. a positive light. Yeah. So that's a part of the complication. But security doesn't have to come from point security, as I've described. It can come from a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways, which is more of a security, pure security approach, is to provide area security as opposed to point security. That is to have a neutral force like the peacekeeping mission on the ground doing patrols, perhaps in advance of a response or nearby, or having a small base not too far away, but far enough away not to be necessarily associated with that, but available if required, or in an interposition kind of role between national forces and and militia trying to say, give us a pause so that we can get this done. So that's one approach. Another approach is providing security for the community itself. In in the urban areas, you can do that through a more robust community policing kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So we're not just focused on the responders themselves, but the community at large and reducing criminality, which which can be done through a, a robust program, has a beneficial impact not only for the community, but it serves as a deterrent for those who may want to attack without, as I say, this kind of point security being required. And another dimension is the engagement politically. You've mentioned several national figures. They, too, can play a role. And I think once a new government is formed, and the reports today is that there is an agreement for that to move forward, I think that will give an opportunity for that kind of leadership to Mm -hmm. be much more useful locally. But there's also uh, local leadership that's important, whether it's religious, traditional. There are people at the communities. There are youths. There are those who... Even those who provide a motorcycle a taxi kind of support can can be both useful or detrimental depending on what the kind of engagement. And it's important, I think, extremely important to be listening to people on the ground and wherever they may be coming from. One of the issues is the lack, uh, a perception that not enough of the employment that's coming in for this is sufficiently 
tapping into the local population. And it seems to me to be something that is legitimate. And, and I think that, too, can go a long ways to pulling people into the response itself. And just, you know, better work with communities in terms of explaining the nature of of this disease. But I was told by one politician locally, he said, don't go in and talk to people directly about Ebola. Go there and listen first. Hear what they have to say about their... Their needs. Their needs. And, right. and there are many. I mean, more people still die from malaria. Uh, measles is a big problem now for the children in that region. There are many needs that are there. And to focus just on one thing creates sometimes a suspicion or a, mm -hmm. a resistance. So it's important to engage them on, on what they perceive to be their problems. And we want to build that into our response as well. So along those lines, do you think it's inevitable that we're going to see in this next phase a more multidimensional approach to the developmental needs, the basic needs of these communities? Donors are going to be called upon as some new strategic plan is formed up to begin investing more in these communities across a spectrum of development needs. Is well, that where we're heading? I think that'll be a part of it. It also requires, I believe, national government support for the same. Yes. And we need yes. to work both sides right. of that, quite frankly. But the, the World Bank is already investing significant resources in a program of community works, which is designed both to improve the infrastructure locally, but also generate a large amount of local employment. UNICEF, together with other partners, are looking at essential services and how mm -hmm. those areas affected by the, the outbreak, how those can be improved. And, of course, there's a general humanitarian support coming in, even through the World Food Program for nutrition and things like that. So I think that'll be a very important piece as we go forward, both for the immediate response, but we need to start thinking post-Ebola, where we go from there. And there's maybe some opportunities to take advantage of, of this really tragic situation, but to look at some of the longer-term stabilization. If we're going to be doing political engagement together with the government, with armed groups, to find an end to conflict, that could be a positive for the future. And this is an opportunity to develop that. And there's some appetite, I think, by some of these armed groups to find a way forward out of out of conflict and into longer-term uh, engagement back into uh, reintegration back into communities. So we can use, mm -hmm. we can leverage what's going on with this to larger needs and longer-term needs. And I, I hope we can work that out as we go forward. We've, um, I, mean, I spoke with Felix Tishakedi when he was here for his visit, and he was very reassuring that this, that this outbreak was contained and that we shouldn't be racing to the wrong conclusions. And a few weeks before that, when we did a town hall at the Munich Security Conference with Dr. Tedros and Mike Ryan and Henrietta Four from UNICEF and Jean-Pierre Lacroix, from UN Peacekeeping. Paul Kagame was there, and he had a very similar message. We got this under control, don't jump to the same conclusion. And in some ways, the time that's, this has not jumped into the neighboring states, and those states have used that time to some degree to build up their defenses and their preparedness, which is good. Do you see any change in the outlook at the state leadership within the region? Obviously, they were very disturbed at the idea of declaring this a public health emergency of international concern. That committee met for the third time, shot down that idea, was rather controversial. It's confusing to turn that down and then have Dr. Tedros say, well, it is an extreme emergency. Mm -hmm. It may not be a fike, but it's an extreme emergency. Are you seeing a shift of attitude among the state leadership in the region? 
both Felix de Shakedi, but also Paul Kagame and uh, and and President Museveni. Well, maybe just a, a, before I answer that question, just a, a comment on under control. I personally don't believe it will be under control until we have zero cases. It's it, it remains a threat as long as it circulates, and I also avoid using the word contained because that implies something that is actively containing it. It's been confined to a general area, and I think that's attributable to, to the vaccine and perhaps some other factors about how it's been transmitted. But it remains a present threat to, to move into neighboring provinces or across the, the border. And that's not something that's sustainable long term. At some point, something will fail. And so we really need to focus on getting down to zero. Now, in terms of your question, I think that's still to be determined, whether there's a fundamental change in the attitude. We are seeing in Uganda good preparedness, and I think that was demonstrated by that recent case that came across, and there were other cases that were caught at the border, so those are good positive signs that the preparedness is is working. But I am concerned that until... We, we have to have the attitude that we have to just get rid of the virus. We have to kill it off. It has to get down to zero. We can't relax before that. And, and we can't really talk about anything being under control until it's done. Otherwise, people relax, the funding drops off, and then suddenly we see we're in a big problem. Thank you so much. Before we close, and we're getting towards the end of our time, I do want to ask you the question of what are you looking for from the United States? The United States has been engaged from the beginning. We've been constrained because of the security prohibitions in going into the hot zones, the epicenters, and that's been a, a source of debate here in Washington and elsewhere, and it continues as a, a and, and internally within the administration it remains a debate. But there's also been all of these high-level visits, which I take as a very positive sign of engagement, and a lot of rethinking and a lot of planning and the like. So tell us what your hope is for the U.S. role in this next phase. Well, I, I, certainly uh, the continued political and financial support for this will be critical going forward. I, I cite both because I think both are required. Many countries look to the United States for leadership, and I think that leadership is critical, and I, I believe it's there at this point in time. So that's a very positive thing that needs to be sustained. It would be good to overcome some of the uh, restrictions, such as the restrictions related to TIP. I think that's a mm -hmm. constraint that I, I think there's a desire to overcome that, and I think that will be helpful to open up new resources to be uh, released. So that's one element. I think political to financial is important. Secondly, I would simply say it's not obvious, but the peacekeeping mission there has played an important role in helping to sustain the response on the ground. And that mission needs to be continued to be funded correctly so it can continue that role. And decisions are being made as we speak on that, as, as you know. So it's important that that be taken into account. And then thirdly, you mentioned the role of American experts who have a tremendous expertise in this area. What I, I would simply say, it's unfortunate that many of them, actually none of them, can really go onto the ground right now. You can see from a bit of a distance from Goma or, or elsewhere that things may not be going in the right direction, but it's much harder to figure out why they're not going in the right direction. You really need to be on the ground. You have to kind of taste it, smell it, feel it on the ground. And so that's unfortunate. And it would be good to find ways that we can plug in those we can plug in maybe serious experts maybe retired people who are not under the same constraints or whatever but there there needs to be a way to get that done so that we can take maximum advantage of that kind of expertise so those are the broad areas that i think where the u.s government can continue to provide leadership and sustainment of this particular response great 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us it's today. It's my pleasure. And, thank you very uh, much. And we wish you all the best. We're all very encouraged to see you taking on this role. Thank you so much. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed featuring David Gressley, the UN Emergency Ebola Response Coordinator in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work, please visit our Global Health Policy Center program page at CSIS.org.